Hello and welcome. My name is Michael, and I am a former wine and beer salesperson. And I am Gabe. I am WSET Level 3 certified and an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. And this is Laidback Lush. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Laidback Lush. Send us your DMs, your questions, and any concerns you may have for the problematic content that we continually seem to want to produce. So <laughs> today we are going to be doing a starter episode on a couple of different wine laws that are found throughout both the New World, which includes those areas that are frequently referred to as discovered in recent centuries, as well as the Old World, which is the more historically solidified areas, including Europe and other places to the east of our domestic little area of the USA. So today we wanted to focus on New World wines, primarily because we thought that it was going to be a bit more familiar and because they're actually pretty simplistic in Push Comes to Shove. So we'll be talking about how they are divided, how they are uh, typically recognized for, for their quality or prestige. And then we're going to go into a little bit of how that contrasts with the old world. Yep. And apologies ahead of time if uh, the episode sounds a little strange. We are remote recording for the first time because uh, Michael is still feeling a little under the weather. So and I didn't want to get Gabe sick. Because the last thing we need is for the star to be sick. <laughs> oh, the star, wow. The diva. We can't have the diva getting sick. <laughs> I prefer the term prima donna. Thank you very oh, much. Pardon me. Prima donna enchant us <laughs> once again. Um, <laughs> Don't quote Phantom of the Opera at me, sir. <laughs> I will quote Phantom of the Opera whenever I want to. Thank you very much. Um, but we are remote recording. So again, apologies for that. And luckily, we mostly have American uh, or English words that we are going to be speaking today, so we don't have to apologize for that. But in our next episode, which is going to be focusing on German wines, we do have to apologize for our pronunci uh, pronunciations of things. Our pronunciations. <laughs> okay. Oh, we are off to a great start today. Isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? Yeah, somehow I ended up relapsing or catching something different. Whatever the case may be, we are in troubled times in 2021. So, <laughs> so hopefully I'll still be able to bring you guys some good content. I'm sure you'll do great. Well, thank you, Gabe. I appreciate the encouragement. Uh, so without further ado, let us get on to some New World wines. We're going to be focusing on what are called AVAs. We're going to be focusing on the all US of A. Yep. Before we really dive into AVAs, though, just some kind of, part of the reason why we wanted to dive into something more specific is um, it's a little bit difficult to talk about New World wines in terms of labeling laws rather extensively because there aren't a lot of them. So just some, some fundamentals. And Michael, you already kind of hit this a little bit, but New World, when we're saying that, we're basically referring to anything outside of Europe for the most part. So Australia, New Zealand, Chile, Argentina, the United States, of course. This is kind of a catch-all term in the wine world. For New World wines as a whole, the, the labeling systems can definitely vary between countries, but there are some kind of major uh, commonalities between most New World countries. So those would be that 
labels tend to focus a lot on the varietal or the name of the wine itself, which that name can sometimes be legally mandated to kind of relate to what is in the wine, and sometimes that's not really the case. So like if you have something called the lover from Argentina or something, I don't know. Some places you can get away with that, from what I understand, in some places it needs to be a little bit more specific of like saying it's a red blend or something like that needs to be on the label. Yeah. And for individual grapes, you almost always will see if it's a varietal wine, what that varietal is. It's very uncommon for a single varietal wine from New World regions to not have that on the label. You also focus a lot on your producer and your vintage on New World labels. New World tends to be very producer-driven. Old World definitely can be as well, particularly in places like Bordeaux. But, you know, in the New World, a lot of attention is given more to the producer rather than the region itself. Yeah, it's it's a lot more celebrity-based than than anything else. And that isn't without credit to the people who have done a lot of the pioneering. I mean, you have people who have really transformed entire landscapes and deserve the credit that they have attributed to them. But it isn't even close to what you might expect from your old world labeling or your old world wine laws. A lot of the marketing, a lot of the recognition that's placed on these areas is based on a name or a label associated with the name. Yeah, we'll get into this kind of towards the end of the episode, but uh, Old World tends to be focused a lot on terroir of region, and New World tends to be regionally focused, yes, but also the producers within that region is kind of a good distinction, I think, that you can make there. Precisely. Oh, also, um, ABV is required pretty much everywhere to be on the bottle. I don't know of a region where it's not required. And typically you will see some kind of like in the US we have the Surgeon General's warning. Australia has laws around this too. I know that basically saying alcohol can be harmful if consumed too much and don't drink if you're pregnant. So those are things that must appear on labels as well. But also even though it's the the region is not typically the main main focus of New World wine pretty much everywhere is going to have a geographic indicator or a GI on it. So um, New South Wales from Australia or, you know, uh, Central Otago from New Zealand, or sometimes you just get, depending on the laws in that country, you can get statewide ones or even countrywide wines. Those are typically not very great quality, but it is um, allowed in certain areas. But moving on to the AVA system, and the reason we chose the AVA system is we are American, and this is what we're most familiar with. <laughs> and I do think AVA is kind of a good example of how a lot of New World wine laws work. Yeah, that, that is precisely correct. So what does AVA mean? AVA stands for American Viticultural Area, and AVA is basically where a group of people, winemakers in a region, come together and say, we want to be a legally defined area, and they will seek a legal definition, basically, or a, a boundary, a legal boundary, of what can and cannot be called that wine. Now, within that, though, there is a little bit of wiggle room. And what I mean by that is 
the minimum is 85% of those grapes must come from that AVA. This can be higher for what are called sub-AVAs. Napa Valley is a really good example of this. So in Napa Valley, you have the AVA of Napa Valley, right? And then you have some sub-regions like Stab's Leap or Rutherford. Those are sub-AVAs, and those can have stricter limitations put in place on what the minimum amount of grapes that must come from that region are. And that really does have to do with the passion that the winemakers in that area, or the producers from that area, have for their specific regions. Sometimes you can have a place like Napa, and you can have a, a sub-AVA of you know, the Diamond Mountain District or Calistoga that has such a contrast to the general AVA that it really demands through either quality or through terroir, that it be designated differently than the places surrounding it. Yeah. And normally, if you're making a sub-AVA, your winemakers that are pushing for that want to create something that's fairly quality anyway. Mm -hmm. Because it's a lot of legal trouble. Like, you have to lobby, you have to get bills passed to, you know, get the legal definition. So if you're buying from a sub-AVA, normally you're going to be getting something that most likely came entirely from that sub-AVA. That's, again, it's not always the case. Uh, New World wine laws in general kind of tend to play a little loosey-goosey with this, even so far as there is a big scandal a couple years back where a company was selling wine that the label indicated through the language used on it, that it was from Oregon when really they were sourcing grapes from California and there was yeah. like a big lawsuit associated with it. And that that was one of the biggest scandals that I've actually seen in the wine world because it was literally that they were using a loophole in order to say, oh, well, we created the wine in Oregon mm. despite the fact that they were sourcing it from California. And so yeah. for people who are diehard fans of terroir, this was kind of a betrayal, really, because you wanted to get the terroir of Oregon, and instead you were getting something that was a mass-produce ploy that was simply using the prestige of the name, the recent discoveries of the region, in order to market their product. Precisely, yeah. And that led to some legislation actually i believe in washington being enacted or or at least suggested by the local winemakers to make it even stricter on their specific avas in washington that it now has to be a hundred percent of what is on the label must come from that ava yeah so which if you guys know anything about my opinion on pinot noirs specifically from the willamette <laughs> valley you know that i am a huge huge uh supporter of of this yeah. specific decision kind of along that vein though so we had we just talked about you know washington that went stricter we also have avas that are more generic that can be even less strict so like a california ava mm -hmm. only has to have 75 percent if you see typically like only a state or a rather large region on the label only 75% of that had to have come from that AVA. I don't know why it goes even lower. That seems weird. But, you know, legislation got wrote at some point like that for some reason. And uh, we have to live with it for the time being. 
And also for AVAs, this is something that's very common even in old world, but typically in the old world, the requirements are much higher for the percentage. But for most AVAs, only 75% of what is on the label, if it's varietally labeled, must be in that wine. So if you buy a Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, if you're in Napa Valley, you're probably making 100% Cabernet Sauvignon or possibly blending in a little bit of Merlot or something else to kind of like even it out a little bit. But, and again, like that's allowed in a lot of old world regions, but, uh, you know, in Napa Valley, you're probably going to be going over that. And most producers, I would say, or reputable producers at least, are going well above 75%. But just know that up to 25% of that wine might not be what is on the label. Yeah. And that also can cause some issues and has caused some issues in the past, particularly, uh, I know we've talked very early on, I think, Michael, you had mentioned people blending Syrah into Pinot Noir. My Lord, is that a common issue? And it, it actually confuses what people think is supposed to be Pinot Noir, because you have people who come in, they're trying to buy expensive Pinot Noirs from very prestigious wine producers, but it actually is more along the lines of the body that you would expect from a Cabernet or a Petite Syrah or a Syrah itself because of the fact yeah. that they are blending in so much of it. And it, it, part of the reason why this exists, if you're in an area, uh, Virginia is actually a really good example of this where our vintage variation is really intense. The same wine from the same plot will not taste the same year to year in most circumstances. So this kind of gives you some wiggle room, and this is a large part of why the old world also will allow a little bit of wiggle room, again, typically within a higher minimum percentage of what's on the label, but it, it can be a safeguard. So it's not always bad, per se. And sometimes... With Cabernet Sauvignon or these more intense grapes, you do want to blend in something a little bit softer to kind of help it mellow out or be maybe more approachable as a young wine. But you don't necessarily want to put that on the label because if it's only, you know, 5%, it's kind of like, what's the point of even putting that on the label? You know, because at that point, it's like barely qualifying yeah. in my mind to even be considered a blend because it's really just a winemaker's finesse. And you really should allow winemakers to be able to balance out their product if it's too high of an acidity or if there's too much of a an unbalanced tannin profile or something like that, then yeah, they're going to need to be able to source something from somewhere in order to make mm -hmm. their wine accessible. Yeah. I think I was mistaken earlier when I was talking about Washington. I think it was Oregon because this is on my notes. And it, it's 95% of the wine yeah. must be from the AVA on the label. Yeah, it is Oregon. So yeah, that that again is a safeguard against what is essentially label fraud, in my opinion. I don't really know how else to describe it. That's precisely the way I would describe it because it is exactly that. And it has been used as exactly that. And and the fact is, is that we really are a younger group to be doing wine, which is probably why we are so celebrity-driven in the first place. It's because of that that we are seeing some of these practices in place that are a bit more on the deceptive side. But at the same time, the yeah. potential of our AVAs is phenomenal. I mean, we are producing world-class wines. There's no doubt about it. Well, and again, your reputable producers are not going to 
typically be playing loosey-goosey with these um it's gonna be a gimmicky uh producers yeah which i won't call out right now yeah we we don't want to cause drama but they are out there and we know where you are we will find you (laughs) i will find you and i will review you (laughs) yeah so that's that's avas kind of in a nutshell we here in Virginia, we have an AVA for the state. We also had the Monticello AVA. Gabe and I are planning a trip to Early Mountain again, and I yes. am very much so looking forward to spending all of my spare money on the Quakers Field. <laughs> Just buy a bottle for the table. And no, seriously, the that's one for the table. For the table? No, that's that's <laughs> mine. That's my wine. <laughs> It's mine. You can't have any of it. It's mine. I don't know anybody there well enough. <laughs> Michael's going to turn into like a little cellar goblin and he's just going to like crouch over the bottle and take swigs of it every couple of minutes and hiss at anyone that comes near it. Oh no, I'll I'll hiss. It'll be like a whole thing. But yeah, so so we have some AVAs here in the state kind of moving back to that, but moving on from AVAs for the new world as a whole, there are a lot of labeling terms that legally are kind of meaningless. Yeah. When you're looking at other regions of the world, these things do actually have very specific meanings. But as far as the U.S. is concerned, it's it's not so much a thing. Even if, if so, reserve starting off, reserve is not a legally defined term. Again, your higher quality producers are typically going to be, if they are putting reserve on a wine, actually doing some cellaring and some aging and putting more effort into that wine. But just know that legally speaking, it's kind of a meaningless term. You can just throw it on for something that you want people to buy as a marketing gimmick if you want, with no legal repercussions really at all. Yeah. So just be careful about reserve. Again, uh, I know we say this a lot, but know who you're buying from is kind of the the primary way to avoid buying a, a reserve wine that is not actually a reserve wine from a uh, quality perspective. Yeah, because typically the difference in the marketing is going to be, again, name-driven. You have to know the producers mm-hmm. when you're talking about U.S. wines. Yeah. Maybe we should have an episode uh, talking about like our top five or top ten American producers who are doing the most to really give consistency and prestige to U.S. wines. I think I need to drink more American wines if that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> Gabe's sitting over here with all of his Bordeaux blends. Like, uh, hey, I, I hey, don't even I've know been, about the U.S. <laughs> I've been expanding, okay? I have a Chablis that I plan on drinking tonight. A Premier Crew Chablis at that that I got from Naked Wine. Shout out to Naked Wines. Hashtag, please sponsor us. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, another problem that you can run into with New World Wines, and this is becoming less of a problem because the EU has tried to tamp down on labeling things as old world regions that are not old world regions. So what do I mean by that? California champagne used to be fairly common on California sparkling wines, mm. and it, it it still can show up uh, from my knowledge, but it's not champagne. They're basically relying on the ignorance of a casual wine buyer to think 
oh, it's champagne, therefore it's like quality sparkling wine when California, legally speaking, cannot make champagne. Champagne is a regional wine. So once you realize that the wine laws are mutually exclusive with some instances of allowance, if I can call it that, whereas there isn't as much in the way of direct, like there's never going to be a time when the French lawmakers are going to be able to come down on a California producer. They're only going to be able to discourage it. Uh, That is pretty much true, but there are some uh, like diplomatic agreements, I guess I'll call them that, to try and uh, fix this issue. There's, There's some works in the making. Yeah, and there are a couple of international laws that do govern things that you just cannot put on a wine label. Much in the same vein as like you can't say that you are a sherry unless you come from one of the three cities inside of Portugal. Yeah, or Spain. Or Spain, excuse me, uh, not Portugal. Same landmass, different country. Yeah, true. Yeah, so for example, port. Actually, fun fact, Horton Vineyards here in Virginia can legally put on their port-style wine. They can put port on that because they got grandfathered in before this wine law went into effect. But there is a law internationally saying that, you know, port comes from the Duero region in Portugal, and you cannot call it that if it's not from there. But again, some people got grandfathered in, like Horton. So um, even then, there's a little bit of an exception. But saying all this to say, there are some agreements, diplomatic agreements in place to try and tamp down on this. Another way that you can really know for sure if you're not super familiar with your regions and your your producers and what can come from where is pretty much everywhere. I don't know of a region or a country where this isn't the case. You have to put at least where the the producer that is producing the wine is located. That is something to look for on a label if you are having trouble identifying something if you see something like um oh shoot uh michael do you know what the uh there was another thing from california that they were labeling as burgundy but there was like a word that you put in front of burgundy do you know what i'm talking about i know what you're talking about i don't remember the word point being like on the bottle you would have burgundy on the label it's not from burgundy it's from california but on the label it would also require that the producer post their information in terms of like where they are producing so you would see that it's produced in the united states in california and you would know okay this isn't burgundy it's not from france so that is something to look for if you are a little bit confused by what's on a label that being said though like you can find things that will say whether or not they are champenois style whether or not they're just being blended from that in the style of another region they'll typically say it on the label Yeah. And if you see an American, particularly, I mean, most states, I think, do this, but California and Virginia, I know in particular, do this a lot. Actually, I think Virginia is kind of moving away from this, but uh, the term meritage is used to indicate that the wine is a Bordeaux style blend. It was something to kind of. Some of your servers might pronounce that meritage as well. Yeah. It was something to try and differentiate our wines from Bordeaux, even though they were using the same grapes, which is like a very weird choice, in my opinion, and kind of useless. (laughs) So that's something, if you see it on a label, that you can know what that means. It's a Bordeaux blend, so Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, 
maybe some Petit Verdot, Carmenier, uh, Malbec, potentially blended in. And that's that's the thing that you'll typically find when you're looking at a lot of American wines, the way that you're going to be able to designate quality is basically whether or not it has a brand name. So you'll have something that can be confusing, like you'll have something that has been produced by Orrin Swift. And this will normally come in the form of, you know, a random wine label that is associated with his name. Unfortunately, though, he sold that name and he is currently going under his given name of uh, Charles Finney. So if you want to find the stuff that he's currently making, it's the stuff that is considered a travel series. This is what makes it kind of difficult to navigate American wines, because you'll have names that are then proprietary names, which are then sold, and then you have other winemakers who are actually responsible for creating the wines in association with that name. That being said, though, you will have people like Charles Finney, like Paul Hobbs, like Philip Melka, who are producing wines, and you'll be able to recognize them from their brand names, like Screaming Eagle which currently goes from, I think it's like $500,000 for the 1992 blend. But that's essentially how the American system works. Yeah, You can have a region, that region is going to typically need between 75 to 85 to 95% of the grapes that are in that area. But primarily what you're looking for is the producer themselves, because the winemaker really is what makes the wine, and you have to Mm -hmm. know the name of the wine in order to know whether or not they're making that product, which can be resolved with a simple Google search in most cases. Yeah, exactly. That being said, though, this really differs from the philosophy that comes out of the old world, which isn't so much focused on celebrity as it is on terroir or mm-hmm. or the wine region that something is coming from. And maybe you can explain that a little bit more, Gabe. Yeah. So in Europe, under the EU laws, we have our appellation system in pretty much every country under the EU that is producing wine right now, or at least every major country. What an appellation is, is a very tightly regulated and controlled set of winemaking, what's allowed in winemaking. It can even get down into vineyard yields, obviously what kind of grapes and how much of what kind of grapes can go into a wine that is a regional label. And it can also get even more specific. So in Burgundy, for example, you have particular villages, and then even within those villages, particular vineyards that have their own appellation attached to them and what this does is this it serves a couple of functions typically it's driven again by winemakers who say we want to protect the traditions of our region our village our commune whatever and so we want this winemaking these grapes this quality to be basically legally defined. And and these traditions, they will stretch back for hundreds of years. Yeah, I mean, just look at back to our champagne episode. Champagne now legally requires what has been developed over centuries at this point. So it's a way to protect the terroir and how the people that have been there. Because it ends up not just being a production from the land, but also from the history and the people that have been tending that land 
for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Yeah, it it can be pretty broad. Um, Typically, Appalachians kind of go in like a pyramid hierarchy, which the next episode for Germany will kind of help, I think, maybe get this into a little bit better focus. But think of like a pyramid. And so typically in Europe, you have a base level, which is just kind of a general geographic indicator. So France, or maybe even just a a regional one. So Bordeaux, and then you have subregions. So Medoc, O Medoc, Saint-Emilion Grand Cru within Bordeaux. And then you can start getting into the Cru Classes, which are houses or chateaus that were ranked in the 1855 classification. We will just need to do a whole episode on Bordeaux because Bordeaux wine law is insane. But it's a hierarchy. Think of it like a hierarchy. And that is what most regions in Europe do. They have a regional appellation, and that will have its own, you know, grapes you can use. A lot of them, you know, we'll talk about aging styles even. Minimum aging Spain is really known for their uh, Hoven up to Grand Reserve system being based entirely on aging requirements and grapes and, and some other stuff but primarily the aging requirements. And that kind of counters the New World philosophy of producer-driven, more experimental. I'll say that. A lot of old world winemakers will actually, if they want to experiment, they cannot do it under the label that they are living under. So let's say I'm in the Chianti Classico region, but I want to make a really funky uh, like Syrah Merlot blend. I can't do that and call it Chianti Classico, that I legally am not allowed to do that. So what some producers in the old world will do is they will declassify to a more general, less specific GI or geographic indicator. I'm just going to use GI from now on in these episodes, just so you know, listener, that it means geographic indicator. So if I'm in Chianti Classico, uh, I forget what the base Italian wine is, but there is one for basically just a wine from Italy. I might have to declassify all the way down to that in order to do what I want to do. Um, Virginia actually, fun fact, has a lot of French winemakers that came to Virginia, so that way they weren't under these very strict regulations. So it is a double-edged sword for winemakers because they don't get to do as much... Um, playing around with their wines it's great for the consumer in one way but it also limits innovation in another and it's not so much that they can't innovate in the styles that they're going for it's just simply the fact that they have to be very specific in what they're trying to innovate within correct yeah but it does help for consistency right if i get an omedoc i know what the general profile of that wine should be precisely so it helps the consumer a lot. But you're not exactly going to be looking for the highly experimental within mm-hmm. the old world unless they're able to declassify to a point that you may not even be willing to look at them if you're a more snooty yeah. consumer. Well, and that's kind of the double-edged sword, right? It's because a lot of these very generic country-level or regional-level GIs are known for being less quality. And so producers are hesitant sometimes to do a quality wine within that label because it just might not sell. Yeah. So that's the balance in the old world that you have to kind of wrestle with. But all that being said, 
maybe we should uh, wrap up and move on in our next episode. We decided to do Germany because we have a handful of very loyal German listeners. We have no idea where you came from, but we are very grateful for you. And so we wanted to uh, start with Germany to give you guys a little recognition and shout out. And please forgive us ahead of time for how horrifically we will butcher your language. And please, again, you knowing how to pronounce these things, send us voice messages with the correct pronunciations. I know very (laughs) limited German. Mostly I know how to ask people how to dance, and that's about it. So, uh, anywho, though, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please follow us at LaidbackLush on both Instagram and Twitter. I've been Michael. I've been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers.